Well, good morning to all of you. It is a pleasure to be back here after such a long time. We were members here, as Dan said, or Rich said earlier, for one year. We lived right over there in the Oak Leaf townhomes across the street. Uh, but almost six years now have passed uh, since we were sent out as a part of the initial group that started at Richfield Bible Church. God has been faithful to us as a family over the last six years and also as a church. And uh, a good measure of that faithfulness has been through this church. And so thank you very much for your love for the gospel and your love for other healthy churches uh, in the area. I've been encouraged this morning to hear of how many of you have been reading Judges 17 and 18. And I hope that's been a blessing to you as you've prepared for this morning. And also I wanted to say thank you to the musicians uh, for preparing us well this morning to look into this text together. So please turn with me in the book of Judges to Judges 17. Now, I don't know how recently you maybe have read Judges. Some of you, uh, it's been this morning or last night, and that's good. Uh, I don't know how well you know it. And so I want to explain very briefly uh, what Judges, uh, what you can expect in the book of Judges. Throughout most of the book, you're probably familiar with this, there is a cycle that plays out again and again and again. And that's a cycle of rest in the land, idolatry, judgment, groaning, and rescue. Then rest, idolatry, judgment, groaning, and rescue. And, and round and round it goes. And in each cycle, God judges His people for their sin of unfaithfulness toward Him. And then He rescues them through a judge. And this is where we get some of our favorite Bible stories like Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. And so today we're in Judges 17. The chapter before that, obviously, is Judges 16. In Judges 16, we finish the story of Samson. And that is the last time in the book of Judges that we go around that cycle. For the rest of the book, in chapters 17 through the end, through 21, there, there is no cycle, there are no judges, and there are actually no more oppressive enemies coming down upon Israel, which has been the case throughout the entire first part of the book. So these last few chapters are very different than the rest. Now I want you to imagine with me that you and I both live in ancient Israel during the time of the judges. I live way up north in the city of Dan, and you live in a city called Shiloh, which is you know, much further south, but kind of in the middle of Israel. And where you live in Shiloh, there are two wonderful things. There's the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. But though we don't live in the same city, uh, we are really, really good friends. And so you come to visit me in the city of Dan. I've grown up here my entire life, and so I know the city well, and I'm eager to take you around and show you the various sites of my city. And so we're walking through the city, and you ask me, you say, what, what is that over there? And so I, I, you're pointing kind of up the street at this building that is clearly a place of worship. And so I explain, yes, uh, that is actually where we gather to worship the Lord. There's, there's actually uh, these beautiful carved idols of silver there. It's really quite wonderful, and we use them to worship the Lord. Now remember, you're, you're from Shiloh, which has the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, and so you ask, 
Like, where did these silver images come from in this worship center? How did all that get here? And so I begin to explain to you, well, it all started years ago when a guy in the land of Ephraim, actually down near Shiloh, where you're from, it all started when this guy stole some silver from his mother. So look at Judges 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he, Micah, said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Now, I'm not sure what you're envisioning in your mind's eye right now, but Micah is not a young boy who has taken a few dollars out of his mom's purse to buy ice cream, okay? Micah has his own house. He has his own adult children. So he is an adult man who has stolen money from his mother, who is probably elderly by this point. And it wasn't just a few dollars. Later in our story today, Micah is going to offer, as a part of someone's salary, he's going to offer to pay them 10 pieces of silver per year. Okay? So that means that the amount of silver he stole from his mother could have paid that salary for 110 years. So this is, this is not a small amount of money that Micah has stolen from his elderly mother. Of course, Micah's mom doesn't know that her son is the one that, that took it, and so in anger, she curses the thief, whoever he is, and, and Micah hears that curse. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't want to be cursed, so he confesses his sin to his mother, uh, confesses that he is the thief, and so his mother wishes upon him the blessing of the Lord. Verse 3, And he, Micah, restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. So Micah confesses his crime, restores the silver. And what does his mother do with that silver? Well, most of it, 900 pieces, she keeps. But 200 she gives to the silversmith and has made into a carved image and a metal image. Now, it's not exactly clear what she had made that day, but whatever it was, it was dedicated to the Lord. Micah's mom has these things made and puts them in Micah's house, presumably so that he could use them to worship the Lord and therefore be blessed. Verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So Micah has his own personal worship center, complete with all of these special artifacts of worship, and he has his very own personal priest. But did you notice where he got his priest from? Did you catch that? Micah made his own images, he made his own gods, and so Micah made his own priest. He ordained his son to serve as his priest. Now, I hope as you read these first few verses, I hope this all has you kind of scratching your head, like what is going on in Israel? Okay? These are not foreigners. Micah and his mom are not foreigners living in Israel. They are Israelites. But, but maybe you think to yourself, perhaps 
they're like the worst of Israel. Perhaps, perhaps they're like unique in Israel, uniquely bad, and this is uncommon. Okay, look at verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like the author wants you to think that Micah and his mother are unique in Israel? Okay. No, it sounds like they are the norm. Okay. Step into any town in Israel, stop by any home, and you will find people like Micah and his mother. Now, there is one comment later in the story that makes me think that they're, like, this developed worship center is a little bit unique, a little bit uncommon. But if you look throughout Israel, you're going to find people just like Micah and his mother. People who think like them, people who worship like them, because there is no king. And so everyone is just doing what is right in their own eyes. And when that happens, this is what you get. And this is a really good reminder for us that humanity is not better off when we as individuals determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Because of sin, the human heart is naturally bent away from God. And so apart from His grace, we do not come up with what honors Him. And so as we already see in this story, one of the worst things that can happen to you, one of the worst things that can happen to your kids, is that there would be nothing that would restrain them from doing whatever they want. Nothing that restrains them from following their hearts, their preferences, or our priorities. And so we should thank God for the many ways that he restrains us and directs us. I'm thinking of things like the conscience that he has given each of us to help us feel a sense of right and wrong. Kids, can you hear me today? Where are you? There's still some in here. There you are. Okay. You need to thank God for parents who don't let you do everything you want to do. That's a good thing. Thank God for the gift of his creation that reveals his eternal power and Godhead. Thank God for the gift of his word so we know what is right in his eyes. And we can even this morning thank God, as imperfect as it is, for human government, which he gave to punish evil and to promote good. Apparently, things would have been better in Israel if they had had a king. But there wasn't a king, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, Let's get back to the story. We, we know how these idols got created, okay? But how did they get from Ephraim in Micah's house up to where I live in the city of Dan, remember? Verse 7, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. So when we start reading verse 7, it feels like we're getting into this whole new story. But then by the end of verse 7, we realize this is all connected. We meet this nameless young man, an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. He's a sojourner. Most recently, he's been in the city of Bethlehem, but now his sojourning has brought him to Ephraim, to the house of Micah. You know, the guy who stole all that money from his elderly mother, that guy. Verse 9. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And this is really good news for Micah. Look at verse 10. Micah said to him, stay with me, 
and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. Verse 12. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Now, do you remember who had been Micah's priest to this point? Do you remember? His son. That's right. What happened to him? We don't know. Okay? But at the very least, if he retained his priestly post, he was demoted behind this guy, this young Levite who has just come traveling in. But the question is, why? Why would Micah demote his own son to maybe no role, to maybe a lower priestly role, in favor of this Levite? Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Now, think about this. Who is Micah talking to when he said those words? This is the kind of thing you say to who? To yourself, okay? Which is always a wonderful thing when the narrator of a story lets you know what a character is thinking. You see, Micah prefers a priest from the tribe of Levi because it makes him more confident that God will prosper him. Why? Okay, apparently, as, as messed up as Micah's understanding of the world is and of God is, he knows enough about God's law to know that God's priests were supposed to have come from the tribe of Levi. And so this Levite would make his shrine more legitimate. But for Micah... A Levite priest is not a requirement. It's just kind of a, a best-case scenario, right? If you can get a Levitical priest, that puts you in the best position with God. But if you can't get one, you can probably get by with anyone. Okay? All right, back to the story. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Now, we've heard those words before, right? Okay, we've already heard that in chapter 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is becoming a theme, and it's not a good one. Verse 1 again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. All right, so in this story, there's no Micah. There's no young Levite. The focus is on Dan, the tribe of Dan, which is looking for a place to live. Now, we know from Joshua 19 that Dan had been assigned a place to live in the land. But in, in Judges 1, we watched as they failed to take that land due to spiritual failure. And now here they are still looking for somewhere to call home, somewhere where they can rest in the land. Verse 2, <clears throat> so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Now, did you notice whose house did the day-night spies come to on their journey? Okay. Micah's house in Ephraim. So apparently, this is not a new story at all. Again, all this, Micah, the Levite, the day-nights, everything is intertwined. Verse 3. When they were there by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? Okay, this is incredible. The day-night spies know this Levite well enough 
to recognize his voice as they walk past Micah's house. Okay, verse 4. And he, the Levite, said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. Okay, and this is, this is great news for the Danite spies because they could use a priest right about now. Verse 5. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So the spies recognize the voice of this Levite. They talk to him. They're like, wait, you're a priest? No way. Hey, can you ask God a question for us? Okay, this would be really helpful. And the Levite agrees and tells them that their mission is under the eye of the Lord, which is really ambiguous as to what that means. But the spies take that as a good sign. Verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So in other words, the people of Laish, they are way up north at the very top. They are prosperous, they're peaceful, and they're vulnerable, which means that they're perfect. They're perfect. So the spies, they go back to the people of Dan with their report. And this scene kind of reminds me of the report that Moses received after he sent out the the 12 spies and the 10 came back with that faithless report. But this time the report is very different. If you can think back in your mind to what the report those faithless spies brought back, compare it to this one. Look at verse 9. And they, the spies, said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So what do the spies say? They say, we found the perfect place for us to settle. I mean, the land is amazing and prosperous, and the people, oh my word, the people are so vulnerable. It will be like taking candy from a baby. And so it is, it is so clear that God has given us this opportunity. Verse 11. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtal. Verse 13. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So no surprise, the Danite soldiers take the same route as the spies. And where do they stop? Micah's house. Everybody stops at Micah's house, right? Verse 14. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. Verse 16. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. This is the gate to Micah's house. And when these, the five spies, went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest, that's the young Levite, the priest said to them, what are you doing? Okay, now you can imagine this. I doubt that any of us have ever seen 50 people standing on our front lawn. Okay? Can you imagine seeing 600 soldiers armed to the teeth standing on your front lawn? Okay, this is what's happening here. Now, Micah, for whatever reason, I don't know where he is, but he does not seem to know that this is going on yet. 
Okay? But his Levite priest is watching all of this happen, and he's asking, what are you doing? He's, he's upset because the soldiers are gutting his worship center. And if they take it all away, how will he continue to be the priest from Micah? The priest of what? He will have nothing. Okay? So he's very frustrated. Verse 18, and they, the soldiers, said to him, keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? Now, the Levite had been very upset, but now, not so much. Okay. This is his chance to climb the priestly corporate ladder. The soldiers ask him, do you want to be a priest for Micah or a priest for all of us in our tribe? To which Levite says, Good point. Good point. He's not upset anymore. He'll be a priest for whoever will give him the best situation. Verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Now finally, somehow Micah finds out what happened. Look at verse 22. When they, the Danite soldiers, had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. So Micah's making this posse. And they overtook the people of Dan, verse 23. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a, a company? Verse 24. And he, Micah, said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? You've taken the most important things that I have. Verse 25. And the people of Dan said to him, Don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. That is a threat. Okay? They say to him, Micah, you keep talking like this, and some of these soldiers here might get upset, and if they get upset, you might die. So just go home. Verse 26. And the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. Now, I hope you don't feel bad for Micah. Okay? Remember, he stole money from his elderly mother, and it's because of that theft that these images for worship even exist. It's all his fault. And now, Micah knows what it feels like to be the, on, on the other side of theft. Okay? So don't feel bad for him at all. This is really good for Micah. Okay? Verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan. Now, don't you feel bad for Laish? They're Canaanites, but the narrator describes them in a way that, I don't, maybe you didn't feel this, but describes them in a way that makes us feel bad for them. Were, were we supposed to be feel bad for the, for the people of Jericho when Israel wiped them out? No, but, but Laish is different. This time, God's people, the tribe of Dan, are fighting a city that God had never promised them. Dan failed to conquer their assigned land, because they didn't fight in faith toward God. But now they found a city that's so defenseless 
that they don't even need God to win. At Jericho, we were, we were amazed at the Lord's power. But when we come to Laish, we're amazed at Dan's brutal strength, Dan's brutality. Dan had failed to secure a land through obedience, and so instead, they sec- secured a land through their own strength. God was just something they kind of picked up along the way, something that they thought would make them more likely to achieve their goals. Verse 30, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Now, there's a lot we could say about these last few verses, but I want to mention two things. First, did you catch what the narrator finally tells us at the very end of the story? All this time, we thought that the narrator didn't know the Levite's name. But actually, he seems to have withheld that name intentionally until the very end, until right now, for its shock value, I think. Now, there is some debate here. In some Bibles, this Levite is the son of Gershom, son of Manasseh. But in many Bibles, this Levite is the son of Gershom, son of Moses. And if that is the correct translation, then this is a tragic indicator of the extent to which false worship has corrupted Israel. Think about Israel and all the families in Israel. Of all the families, which family would you expect to be the last one that would turn from the worship of the Lord to false worship and to idols? Moses' family would be the very last. On the day that that happened, that would be a very dark day day in Israel. And this is that day. But secondly, I want you to notice that we've come to the end of the story behind the worship center that you noticed on the streets of my city. So let me ask you, does this backstory make you want to move here and be a part of this? Does all the thievery and the brutality in the story inspire you to want to worship at this worship center? No, this backstory is frankly embarrassing. Like I said, it all started when an adult man stole money from his elderly mother. The story reminds us of the foolishness of idolatry, and as the final verses make clear, the false worship at Dan would not prevent that city from from being taken away into captivity. As Isaiah said, the false worshiper, the idolater, does not consider half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? That question never comes into their minds. This story shows the foolishness of false worship and idolatry in my city. Now, what do we do with this story? Okay, when I finish, I I love Old Testament stories. When I finish an Old Testament story, I like to ask myself a couple questions. Okay, and I hope that if you were reading this in your devotional time with the Lord, that you would begin your time of reflection with a question like this. Okay? Where is God in the story? What is he doing? What does he reveal about himself? If you start there, you're well on your way. Okay, always start there. Where is God in the story? So I want you to look down at Judges 17 and 18, and I want you to find something that God says or does. 
find something that God says or does. Now, I'll be surprised if anybody finds anything because there's nothing there. Okay? You see, in this story, God doesn't do anything. Now, what I mean by that is the, the narrator never makes God the actor. Okay? The narrator never attributes any action to God. Now, I didn't say that God is never mentioned. Okay? He's mentioned a lot. Uh, everyone in this story is very concerned about worship. And yet everything we see about worship in the story is how not to worship. And why is that? Why, why is all this happening? Okay, the answer is easy. You know the answer to this question. The narrator has told us that Israel's problem is self-rule. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And in this story in particular, their bent towards self-rule is coming out in their worship. So everyone in the story is concerned about worshiping the Lord, but, but what is their greatest concern? Okay, think through each of the characters with me. Think about Micah's mother. She wanted God to bless her thieving son. So she dedicates these, these, uh, this silver to become images for him to worship with. Her son is a thief, so she enhances his worship to ensure God will bless him. Okay, what about Micah? Micah didn't want cursing from the Lord. And so he confesses his theft and he welcomes these images into his personal worship center. He even hires a Levite, convinced that if he just has the right kind of priest, then God will have to bless him. Then there's the young Levite. He took the job as priest in Micah's house, but he is ready to worship or lead worship for anybody who will make his situation even better. And finally, there's the tribe of Dan. They wanted easy land without obeying God, but they were happy to pick up God on the way if that would make it easier to achieve their goals. And so everyone is concerned about worshiping the Lord, but each one has another greater personal reason to worship. Worshiping the Lord was just a means to get what they wanted. The self-interested worshiper is not really worshiping the Lord. Self-interested worship is just self-worship. It is worship that is about me, because behind self-interested worship is self-rule. The idea that I should rule. The idea that I matter the most. And the problem of self-rule and its self-interested worship is not unique to Israel. We too can worship the Lord for our own self-interest. Sometimes we worship to get what we want. Perhaps you came this morning thinking about that big business meeting you have on Wednesday afternoon. You need God to bless that meeting. And so you were here today to make sure. Your success is really what brought you here. You are worshiping yourself. Or perhaps we want something other than the Lord's blessing and we will use worship to get it. Okay, perhaps we serve in all kinds of ways at, at Eden because we love it when others notice how much we do. Our reputation is really what we worship. We are worshiping ourselves. Or kids, where are you again? Okay, kids, when mom or dad tells you to do, so do something and your first thought is, am I going to get something good enough 
to make obedience worthwhile? Am I going to get a reward that's big enough if I obey? When you think like that and then you obey, you are obeying because you can see now the benefits for you. Kids, you are worshiping yourself. And adults, we do the same thing, right? We pick and choose when we are going to obey God. Once we've confirmed that the, the benefits now okay, outweigh the sacrifices that we have to make. Our comfort, our security is really why we obey. We are worshiping ourselves. Or sometimes our self-interest is seen in that we withhold our worship unless we get what we want. Now, you guys sang well today, okay? But I'm still going to use this as an illustration, okay? Perhaps, perhaps the self-interest of your worship is evident in your frustration and lack of joy during the singing here because Rich doesn't lead the songs that you need to worship. Your joy in your preferred songs is really why you would sing if he would lead them. And so you feel you cannot worship the Lord when the church is not exactly the way you want it to be. You are worshiping your preferences, and so you are worshiping yourself. You see, self-interested worship is self-worship, and we share this problem with Israel. But also remember in Judges 17 and 18 that the narrator was not only very clear about Israel's problem, the narrator was also very clear about the solution to Israel's problem. When did everyone do what was right in their own eyes? In those days when there was no king in Israel. So what is the solution to the chaos brought on by Israel's self-interested worship? God's people need a king. But not just any king, right? If you read back through the book of Judges, there are at least two men who aspired to be king, Gideon and his son Abimelech. Read their stories carefully, and you will see that they would have been awful kings. They would have led Israel further into self-rule and self-interested worship. Now, David was a king who led Israel away from self-worship. He actually was the one that centralized the worship of the Lord and the kingdom in Jerusalem, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city. And then Solomon, his son, Solomon, his son built the temple there in the city. And yet these kings couldn't lead Israel completely away from their problem either. Both of them shared Israel's bent towards self-rule. David, as we know, murdered and committed adultery. And Solomon married many foreign women and worshipped their false gods. Later, there was King Josiah. He was a good one. He led Israel in certain reforms, having found the law of God. But then he dies far too early in a battle, and his son reverses all his reforms. But then finally, finally, there came the king who could raise his people completely out of the chaos of self-rule and self-interested worship. This king from the line of David was born in Bethlehem. He was God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, always in obedience to his father, and then he gave up his life to die for the sins of his people to suffer the punishment our sins deserve. And then he was raised from the dead, victorious, so that if we trust him, we are raised with him to life, forgiven and rescued from our heart of self-interested worship. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Jesus died that those who live might live no, excuse me, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
Jesus is the king who rescues us from our problem of self-rule and its self-interested worship. And because he did, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess and every knee would bow, because he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so under Jesus' reign, you will not see the kind of chaos that we saw today in this story. No, under Jesus' reign, the government is going to rest squarely on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you know how good his kingdom is going to be? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, it may be that you're here today and you are just learning more about Jesus and you've not yet chosen to follow him. And if that's you, I am, I'm so glad that you came here. I'm not usually up here, so come back okay, when the normal guys are here. But I hope you saw at least two things today. First, I hope you've seen the chaos of a kingdom and of a world where everyone rules for themselves. This is not the way that God made his world. Self-rule is as old as the Garden of Eden, where humanity turned away from God to worship ourselves, to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And if you want to see just where that leads, then go home today and read Judges 19, 20, and 21. But I have to warn you, the evil that you find in those chapters is so dark that you will literally want to take a shower after you finish reading it. That is where self-rule leads, and I hope that you can see that clearly today. But second, I hope that in my brief description today of our King Jesus, I hope that you have seen at least a glimpse of his glory, the power of his victory over sin through his resurrection from the grave, and the wonder of his kingdom. I hope that you've caught a glimpse of how wonderful it will be to live under that kind of king, in that kind of kingdom. And I pray that you will turn from your sins and trust in him. Now, for all of us who have already made that decision to follow Jesus, I want to finish by taking us back to one thing that Micah said. Perhaps the key phrase or key statement in the chapter. Do you remember how excited Micah was when he was able to hire a Levite as his priest. He said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Okay. But by basing his confidence of God's favor on whether he had the right worship item, Micah's confidence became really precarious. Because if our confidence is based on something like that, what if someone takes it away? What if someone steals that item? And then our confidence is gone. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. We do not share Micah's precarious situation. Our confidence of God's blessings, far greater blessings than Micah was after, our confidence of God's blessing does not rest on a relic of Christian history, not on the rituals of our worship, and it doesn't even rest on the faithfulness of your obedience. We do not share Micah's precarious situation. Our confidence that God is for us, for us 
rests upon the work of our better priest, the resurrected Christ. Not only does Jesus rescue his people from self-rule and self-interested worship by dying himself for our sin, but his death and resurrection become the ground of our confidence of God's blessing. Our great king is also our great high priest. Our hope of God's blessing now and forever is Christ alone. And no one, no one can steal that as they did from Micah. And so today, in response to these chapters, there are three things. First, we ought to praise our king for how he has freed us from the relentless, fruitless pursuit of our own self-interest. And for the fact that his kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, will be free of self-rule and self-interested worship. Second, we ought to repent. It is discouraging to see self-rule and self-interested worship in our hearts, just like Israel. And we need to repent of that wherever the light of God's word has exposed that in our hearts today. But I also want to encourage you, when you recognize that similarity between you and Israel, don't forget the differences between you and Israel. Israel needed a king, and you have one. Jesus Christ, he already dealt with your sin completely, and he is leading you with his word by his spirit. Israel needed a new heart. You have one. You have been born again. You are a new creation, raised to life with your resurrected king. And so third, we ought to rest in the faithfulness of Christ. We need never face the anxiety that Micah felt when his worship center was gutted. Our king has committed himself to his people with his blood, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so today, in these days, there is a king over God's people. And so may we all, by his grace, do what is right in his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning how you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And thank you that Christ as our priest entered once for all into the holy places of your heavenly sanctuary, not by means of the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing for us eternal redemption. Amen.